0: This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Ty Mansfield is a practicing marriage and family therapist and an adjunct instructor in religious education at Brigham Young University. Ty completed his undergrad work in Asian studies and has been actively practicing mindfulness for over 10 years. And he is uh, certified with Jack Kornfield and Tara Brock in their mindfulness meditation teacher training program. Ty has also been actively cultivating space for more mindful listening in the area of conflicting views on sexuality and gender for the last decade through his work at North Star International and the Reconciliation and Growth Project. Ty and his wife, Danielle, and their five children live in Provo, Utah. Welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I am your host, Tara McCausland, and welcome, Ty. I'm so thrilled to have you here.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: This is actually a conversation I've been wanting to have even before I started (laughs) the podcast. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, needless to say, I think that we've got a great conversation uh, ahead of us that will really, I hope bless those who listen. Mm -hmm. One thing that I didn't mention in your bio, because it was in the back of the book, um, Ty is a co-author of a great book titled The Power of Stillness. And that will be the fodder for a lot of the conversations that's going to follow. But I wanted to preface it with this. If you don't mind, Ty, meditation for me was not even on my radar probably five years ago. And do you remember that talk given in general conference titled what lack I yet?
1: Uh, Vaguely.
0: Um, I can't remember how long ago it was, but I remember, you know, taking that to heart (laughs) and, um, you know, saying a prayer and and just trying to figure out what what do I need to work on and through that process, my answer surprisingly to me was you need to learn how to meditate and you know that was really kind of out of left field for me I was waiting for you need to be more patient <laughs> or you know work on being more meek you know the the regular stuff that I was just anticipating but the, the idea of learning to meditate really was kind of a foreign idea for me at the time. And I've since learned why the Lord had directed that, that thought. But perhaps you can start us off by just giving us an overview of what mindfulness and meditation is and what it might have to do with us as Latter-day Saints.
1: At the heart of Latter-day Saint theology is community and ultimately intimacy with God with each other and with ourselves and I think to the degree that we can't be with ourselves we can't be with each other uh, or with God and I think one of the as I was first kind of turned on to like mindfulness I mean we can there's some backstory to that that we can talk about but one of the metaphors that kept coming to my mind and I just felt like this was the spirit bringing it to my mind meditation. I mean, mindfulness is one of many kinds of meditation, right? So they're not necessarily synonymous per se, but, but, um, uh, and, in the, you know, in the book we talk primarily about mindfulness, but uh, certainly there's a, again, a, a broader scope, but the, the idea that we kept or the, the kind of the, the scriptural story that kept coming to my mind was that of the brother of Jared, As they were trying to figure out how to um, light these barges, right? And he, uh, you know, it mentions that um, that the brother of Jared went and took these stones and he molten them until they were clear as glass. So there was a work that he could do individually to make transparent this medium, and then the real work, you know, I mean, it was God that was lighting these barges, but but he had to make clear so that the light could shine, right? And I think much of meditation is about getting clear. It's not so much about emptying, like, you know, they have these thoughts about just emptying your mind or humming mantras and, you know, there can be meaningful, certainly meaningful practices in in that way, but it's really about just getting clear, clear with ourselves and being fully present, right? And the more clear we are, As we come to God, we then pray that he will light us. He will give us his spirit. He will do his work through us. And the the clearer Mm -hmm. vessels we are, the more power, the more good God can do through us. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's, that's, and I think, I see that's what Jesus is doing is he's going up into the, the mount to meditate, right? He's being with God, being still with God, being powered by God. And then he came out and did his work.
0: Hmm. I love that. Well, and this idea of getting clear with ourselves and being able to sit with ourselves, you cite a study in the book, the participants in this study could sit in a room quietly for a a certain amount of time, or they could shock themselves. (laughs) (laughs) And a, a large majority chose to shock themselves out of the inability to sit quietly with themselves. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's a really interesting idea that we, especially in this busy, uh, just fast paced, everything is immediate uh, culture. We have difficulty in just sitting and being present. And with that, we're not clear with ourselves and there's a wall, I think, between us and God. Not that He wants it there, but because we're we're not able to hear that still small voice. Yeah. So I really like that that scriptural story to start us off and kind of the follow-up there. Why is mindfulness so key to your well-being?
1: Well, and, and in different facets of well-being, right? We have emotional, mental, and then ultimately spiritual and physical. <clears throat> but I think it's a way. It's a. It's really a, about a fundamental shift in the way we show up. Um. You know, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who is a very kind of prominent mindfulness teacher, that really is sort of was a, a major figure in pioneering mindfulness in the West as a as a medical and mental health pra- medical practice first, and. Um, he, you know, he says we're human. He says we're not human doings; we're human beings, right? And yet we often just get lost in the doing. And the West is very much about doing. And you mentioned just a minute ago, being busy, right? And we kind of busy, we out busy each other. It almost becomes kind of a, a status symbol, right? And uh, in, in Chinese, interestingly enough, the character for busy means uh, heart killer, or death, or loss of heart. And the word for mindfulness means to bring the heart into the present, right? And a lot of Eastern Eastern languages, there really aren't separate terms for mind and heart. So in Sanskrit, the word that is translated as mindfulness could also be translated as heartfulness. So being in the present fully, you know, from this place of heart. You know, in, in Buddhism, they talk about the four foundations of mindfulness, right? There's mindfulness of body, mindfulness of... Of mind or thought and mindfulness of emotion are three of the first ones. And, and those are the ones that I, I think about a lot. but but here we are, you know, in our theology, I think it's really interesting that we talk about coming here to get a body, right And yet we spend of our lot a lot of our lives trying to get out of the body, right and not being present in the body and numbing and distracting and avoiding. and and so to really, if we if we really take this seriously, that we are learning how to be embodied beings, we have to befriend the body. And um, Jacob and I were leading a, a mind from the space stress reduction class a couple of years ago. and one of the one of the participants, he'd been a former mission president and you know here's this very um, very seasoned leader, right? And he he made this interesting comment after we had done a, a like a body scan meditation and really again, practicing being in the body and feeling, you know, these different parts of the body and and senses and whatnot. And he just said, he's a, this was really hard. He's like, I've spent most of my life running from myself. Hmm. And, and for him, you know, there was sort of a side comment of like, you know, I think even as, as much of it as his church service had been um, sincere, right. And a desire to serve God, there was also an element of like if I just stay busy, then I can avoid the pain of my life and the trauma of my past and all these sorts of things. And I don't think that's what God wants, right? And I think there certainly is a surrender and we surrender ourselves to his work, but but I don't think spiritual bypass is what God is asking, right? And that we, to learn how to, to be with ourselves fully, be with our emotions fully, our thoughts, understanding our thoughts rather than just running from them through church service, um, we're missing something fundamental, right? And so, this way of being um, really sort of a, a compassionate presence in mind, body, spirit, emotion with each other, right? I mentioned this, I think of it as as, de- as deep intimacy, right? I, when I, you know, the in, the in the true sense of that word, intimacy, Latin root is really about letting people see into me, right? Letting people into my innermost parts. I can't be with God fully if I can't really be with me fully. Um, it's about showing up and being with him. It's not about just, again, acting the part, saying the words. You know, we have this very kind of um, transactional way of doing prayer, right? Prayer for me has really come to mean far more about being with God in every moment. And, and those moments actually for me, that way of doing prayer or being in prayer is much more meaningful and important to me than than the more dialogic prayers uh, that I that I. I think are an important part of our practice. But I think for a lot of years, that's what I thought of prayer as. And I I just don't anymore. I think of that as one expression of prayer. So anyway, I think, I think mindfulness really does just, it's a, it's a fundamentally different way of being with ourselves, mind, body, spirit. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I wrote down this one sentence here. I can't be with God fully if I can't be with myself fully fully. And that, that compassion that you talk about, the ability to, to sit with ourselves in compassion, I think ultimately opens the door to God's great love that he wants us to feel from him. And that I think is for me, the big selling point mm-hmm. um, of why I want to get better at this whole mindfulness meditation piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Terrell Givens Mm-hmm. Um, I interviewed him a couple of months ago and we were talking about this God of love that um, Joseph Smith restored and that still a lot of people in the church don't understand and don't embrace. And I feel like this conversation tie is the, the how to or the missing link in experiencing more of the deep love of God that Terrell given spoke of. So if you haven't listened to that Uh, episode yeah listeners i would go back and listen to it and then this is like the the practice and, and, and how to experience that but um this is what will help us feel greater fulfillment in our spiritual practice as you had mentioned um so that rather than just just checking the boxes praying because we've been told to in the way that we've been told to um reading our scriptures just again to get it done, or going to church, all the things that we're asked to do, that these practices can actually become a source of peace and joy and fulfillment. Communion with God really is what we're after, right? You've kind of mentioned this already, but maybe you can give us a, a working definition, if you haven't already, for mindfulness. And how is Jesus our exemplar in this principle?
1: Um, great question. I think, so the mind, the definition of mindfulness that I was first introduced to, uh, was Jon Kabat-Zinn's and he has sort of a four, there's kind of four key components, but one of them, one of them is about being kind of fully present in the moment. Right. And that presence is, is key. Um, but th- the three other pieces there is on purpose, uh, without judgment, And from a place of a real kind of compassion, right? So that's kind of his kind of his definition, and the one the the thing that often just in real kind of shorthand comes to my mind is just a a compassionate presence in the moment, a non-judgmental compassionate presence in the moment. Because I think the other piece of this that I think is really critical is that we often. I don't know how much of this is like just the Western mind, the way we're kind of socialized in the West and how much of this is just natural man. I imagine there's probably a little bit of both, but we very much were doers and we're also kind of socialized to live through this, through a lens of judgment, right? So even even when we talk about emotions and this is a really big thing for me, because I think, you know, as Terrell Givens has talked a lot about, we believe in a passionate God and, you know, a, a God who feels deeply. And so to be to learn how to be godly, we learn how to learn how to, have to have, how to have to truly feel all of our feelings and be with our emotions uh, in the most healthy way. But we tend to re, we tend to think of emotions less in terms of like what emotions mean and what their function is and their purpose. and we tend to relate to emotions more from a stance of judgment. So we say things like, I feel good. Or I feel bad, right? And bad and good are not emotions or judgments. And what we mean when we say I feel good is feelings that I like. And what we mean when we say bad is feelings that I don't. But you know, I could smoke a joint and feel really nice, but that doesn't mean that it's it's healthy for me, right? And I might be feeling some real um, grief over, you know, finding out that a friend of mine was diagnosed with cancer or something. And I need, I can't bypass that process. I have to really feel and move through each of those stages of grief, or it's, you know, it's going to get stuffed and eventually kind of uh, get infected and, and um, affect me negatively. So learning how to be with all of my emotions, be with, my body be with my thoughts and recognize that uh, sometimes what we're when you know we're living in stories and we don't even realize that we're you know we're, t- we're telling ourselves a story or we're socialized in a particular way to see the world in a particular way or we think things aren't the way that they should you know and this last general conference a talk that i've been thinking a lot about is elder renlund's um infuriating unfairness
0: right i loved that talk
1: and, and I mean, very, very on key because in so much of what we think isn't fair, I mean, there are some really, you know, and he used some, you know, uh, you know, some pretty painful and unfair examples, right. As he was talking about um, war and just a number of things, but, but there's a lot of times our suffering is because of experiences that we think shouldn't be right. Or, if I tell myself that this shouldn't be happening, I'm more likely to increase my suffering, right? It's like, well, it is happening. And so what do I do with that? And learning how to be with all of the experiences of life, even the painful ones. So to, to kind of move this into the next part of your, the other part of your question about, you know, how does Jesus model all of this? Like Jesus, he lived a life of surrender. He lived a life where his will was in full resonance with God's, you know, being fully present with himself. I mean, he, I mean, he didn't use that language necessarily per se, but, but you, he was so himself, right. He, as he showed up with other people, he could show up with compassion or as he showed up with the, you know, as he's interacting with the, the, sad, the Pharisees, you know, he's, he's, Not, you know, he's not in people pleasing mode because he needs them to like him so that he can have a, you know, a strong, some, some kind of strong sense of self or something. And yet we all, you know, a lot of times we just kind of, we're in, we're in protective mode and we're people pleasing and we're caretaking. We're doing all these things that are, that are very normal, but they're not enlightened by any means. And, um, and we lose our sense of self in the process. And I think to the degree that we lose our sense of self, we inhibit our ability to fully be with God. So as Jesus was fully him knowing who he was um, and not living in any kind of proximate or kind of narrative of, you know, mortal narrative, right? I mean, he was really, he was, he was here to do the business of his father. And, uh, and because he knew who he was, he could show up and with other people, both, you know, in compassion, but also sometimes, um, you know, casting a harsh word to people who may have needed that. Right. Um, but he could do that because he knew who he was and then he could be fully present with, with God and, and draw strength from that. And so, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of examples I think we could draw from, but I think that's kind of the, the essence of what I think. of.
0: Well, I wrote some of these things down because I, I knew I wouldn't remember all of them, but <laughs> so to um, summarize that definition. So mindfulness is being fully present on purpose And being in that moment without judgment and and having compassion for yourself and others in that moment. Did I get that right? Mm -hmm. And I love that idea that the ability to be with our emotions in a healthy way is the godly attribute that we are working on acquiring Um, because God is a God of passion. And sometimes I think that's hard for us to digest because we think, well, that doesn't sound like the kind of you know, eternal life that I want to live if I have to feel so much all the time <laughs> for eternity. But you're right, that, that God has learned how to, to ease into all of these emotions in a healthy way and in a, in a way that makes, I think, life and existence most fulfilling. A God that is passionless is no God that I can connect with. And for us to be able to learn how to, to move through life with without judgment and with compassion and accepting all that all the feels that we feel as human beings and being okay with that, it will allow us to release so much of the, the stuff that we often hold on to. And that becomes, yeah, toxic to us and keeps us from feeling, again, God's love for us and the peace that's available to us as Latter-day Saints. But one other piece that I loved... Um, if you don't mind me constantly referencing this book, it's it's a, a must read for all Latter-day Saints. So there's my <laughs> <laughs> there's my cell tie. Um, but one of the things that you brought up in the book was Jesus was our exemplar in this, not just in how he would go about his interactions with people. Christ showed us that, yes, service and teaching and all of these things are important, but he modeled the ability to uh, remove himself and get some quiet space so he could commune with God and and get some clarity with himself. And I, that was really important to me because I never really saw that in the scriptures. We are busy people. And especially as Latter-day Saints, you know, we're the hive was what we were all about, you know, the, the Deseret. And that was for whatever reason, that was like an aha, like, yeah, Jesus did do that. I don't have to be going, going, going constantly to be a good disciple. Does that make sense?
1: Uh-huh. No, perfectly. And we, And we ask this question, right? I mean, when we think about, you know, what would the savior be doing? I'm trying to be like Jesus, right? But when we think of what, you know, what did Jesus do and, or what, you know, what did Jesus model for us? Are we go specifically to what he did, right? The teaching, the healing that, you know, all those sorts of things. And um, I think we do, I mean, to your point, we miss those moments of transition, we miss the moments of being, we miss the moments of withdrawing, right, and um, and resting and renewing in God. Um, and if we do kind of acknowledge them, we don't really, I think we don't really weight them the way that we need to do. I mean, it just as a a really key part of a life of worship. The restoration starts in the sacred grove and, you know, they move from the sacred grove to the beehive, but we tend as much as we, you know, value the sacred grove moment, that was the moment that Joseph, right? It was his experience with God. It's not necessarily a type for our experience of God as much. You know, we're kind of used to the beehive where it's all, you know, just doing, doing, doing and, you know, industry and, you know, with helping hands and all the things that with again that we're known for and that are are good but they're just one piece of it and it becomes distorted if we don't also anchor in the sacred grove as well.
0: Yeah, I'm a doer (laughs) and that's a great thing most of the time. But I think a lot of us, we do, 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 and go, go, go. And we feel the burnout and our discipleship stops uh, blessing our lives in the ways that our heavenly father intends all these things To bless our lives. And Mm so if we can see that, yes, Jesus Christ was our exemplar in serving and loving others. And, and even when he was tired, he would minister to those who were in need, but he would take time to remove himself and to commune and to get clarity and to think. And I think that's without those moments, I know he wouldn't have been able to sustain what he did.
1: Right. Right.
0: And I don't think we can either.
1: And, and I know I, I can only speak for myself here, but I know that when I get into that mode, where I, when I'm not taking those moments of real, um, of, of connecting and communing. And I, you know, and, and I've said a lot of prayers in my life that didn't really, weren't really connecting or communing right? So I, saying prayers, I don't, I think isn't really the answer. It's the, it's being with God in prayer, but in this, in this very communing way. And I think, but there are also times in my life where, um, and this is one of my, my weaknesses is that I have a hard time saying no to good things. And so I do, I over, I overload and I get overwhelmed and I burn out and, and I, and I, I can feel, you know, the more that I do that, the more I become imbalanced, I'm not able to do those things as well. I need that connection with God but I I be you know in the imbalance I lose it and and thus can't even do what I want to do right and so it really is about um, staying rooted uh, in order to be able to to bear the right fruit
0: absolutely now I'm curious because this is something that a lot of people don't considered to be a part of our Latter-day Saint tradition. Um, mm-hmm. What turned you on to this practice of mindfulness meditation? Why did you choose to get all this training and how has it helped you help others?
1: Mm, good question. So when I decided to go back to school, because my my undergrad was Asian studies, as you mentioned in the bio, uh, I was at the time, I mean, I had a minor in business and my whole, I, I my, kind of initially the goal was you know, China had just entered the WTO when I got home from my mission, and I was thinking business opportunities with Asia just seemed, you know, it's kind of something that was in a lot of, you know, international kind of public discussions. And then by the time I graduated, I had spent two summers in China, and I was thinking more in international relations, maybe working for the State Department. So I had gone back east, and I was working for a consulting company while I was preparing to take the Foreign Service exam. And it was then that I had some very spiritual experiences, leading me to go back to school in family therapy. And that was a—I never considered being a therapist; never even crossed my mind.
0: Because only crazy people go into therapy, right? <laughs> I tease. Right.
1: I mean, there's there's a half truth there. Right? <laughs> um, in the wound is the gift, right? So, or the gift grows out of the wound. So as I was, but as I went back, as I was considering schools, going back to school, I was, you know, looking at a list of accredited programs, and I had this very strong, very clear spiritual experience that I was to go to this one particular school, and it was in the middle of West Texas, and I never, I never heard of the school, I'd never heard of the, of the the town, but it was, uh, but it was very clear, I mean, and that's kind of like, that's kind of a vulnerable place to be when there, you know, I didn't know anything about it, and so I, Kind of bracketed that out, so I went and interviewed. And um, when I went there, uh, I went. It was a you know there was there was like three wards. The church is not wasn't very big there. It wasn't tiny, but it wasn't big there. And most you know Latter Day Saint young adults moved away. They didn't move to there. And so when I you know I went and I interviewed, uh, had some confirming experiences that that's where I was supposed to be. So it felt very right, but as I got there. Um, I really enjoyed my program. I loved the professors. I loved the other students. I was a little older. I was, uh, in, I was 29 when I started and most of the other students, I think there was only like two other students that were older than me and they were like going back to school with kids and so they were married with kids and, and were going back. <clears throat> Everyone else was much younger. I was the only Latter-day Saint in, in my cohort. So as much as I enjoyed it, it also like, it felt kind of lonely and, um, and I remember, and I was single at the time, so I was. I remember I would just. I had this prayer, this kind of ongoing prayer of like, of why, why did you bring me here? And um, and as I would ask this prayer, there was, there wasn't like a clear like one time answer, but this there were these this kind of phrase, kept kind of subtly coming to my mind with greater and greater clarity. And it was to learn meaningful solitude, to be be in solitude without being lonely. And because I think we have this idea of like, you know, singleness is loneliness, you know, to be single is to be alone and to be alone is to be lonely. You know, it's just like, and that's like an existence we wouldn't wish on anybody. Right. And at this point, I wasn't sure if I was going to get married. And so I, you know, I, there was a sense of like, I needed to learn how to be in deeper communion with God, right? and to be single without being alone, and to be alone without being lonely, and, and these sorts of things. And at the same time that I was having this sort of more prayerful, kind of revelatory experience in mental health, because you know mindfulness really has sort of uh, increasingly sort of saturated and informed mental health, because there are a lot of mental health benefits. I started um, being turned on to uh, some different, some research and some articles on the intersections of mindfulness with mental health and some of the some of the therapeutic models that are either based on or informed by mindfulness. And I was finding all these things really valuable. So there was sort of this convergence um, at the same time. And so, but because my world and my you know my my theology, I mean, I just. I mean, I'm, I'm a believer, I'm in, I'm in, you know, in the restoration. And so that's that's my worldview. And so everything sort of gets interpreted through that paradigm. And I started to see more of this in the scriptures. And I started to notice more of it in in various words of the prophets. And, and so I could see there were sort of these external threads that were informing my practice. But I was also seeing the principles um, in you know, in scriptures, in various kind of sayings, and, you know, teachings of the prophets, and I have a couple kind of quotes that I'd like to even kind of share here, but that, so it sort of began there, and then when I moved to Lubbock, where I was doing my, my at Lubbock, Texas, where I did my doctorate, there was actually a Buddha Sangha there, so when I moved to Lubbock, where I was doing, where I was working on my doctorate, there was a Buddhist Sangha, so I would go and because um, a lot of this, when I was doing my master's program, it was just kind of on my own. And, you know, I started reading Tara Brach, who I, I uh, you know, just fell in love with her work very early and John Kabat-Zinn's work. And so it kind of started with the mental health frame. And then you started and it, it would kind of ripple out into some of this more Eastern informed, not quite just so like research based. But um, then when I moved to, to Lubbock, I started uh, doing these kind of half day meditations at this, this Buddha Sangha. And there was some teaching, there was, this, there was, a, there was a Buddhist temple in, in um, uh, Dallas area, and one of the monks there would come and do these teachings and, and then just kind of lead these guided meditations and whatnot. But in some of the silence, in these meditations, and these were usually three to four hours long, I would, um, I would notice myself kind of wandering into prayer. And that was just sort of, it was interesting, it was kind of the most natural place for my, wi- my mind to wander into, but as I would find myself wandering into prayer, I could feel like these prayers were some of the richest, most connecting, most communing prayers that I had ever experienced. Uh, and, and my concept of God wasn't changing in this. It was my experience of God was changing in this and, and sort of being transformed. And, and then just kind of through the years, and I would just do my own individual practice here along with this, this sangha and then, Um, And then as I moved back to Utah, I got connected with Jacob and Carrie and, um, and then ultimately um, uh, Kyle. And so there was, there's this, but so all of this, but then, but again, just all meeting other Latter-day Saints and Carrie had had some spiritual experiences that led her, you know, these very clear impressions, you know, as she mentions in the book that she was going through divorce and it was like, practice yoga, right? And, uh, you know, and J- Jacob had had some very, you know, everyone had kind of had these very different experiences, and there are, are many others, right, who are, you know, even beyond those of us that are writing the book, who have had these very similar experiences, and, and I think this is shifting gears slightly, uh, but I, but my, you know, early church leaders really did talk about the restoration in a way that was, you um, Probably closer to the way that President Nelson has been talking about it, I think there's this, this kind of ongoing restoration that that he's um, you know kind of I think brought us back to. There was a sense that the restoration was as much of a gathering of truth as it was a receptacle of truth, and I think many of us think about the restoration. You know, God is revealed through the prophets, and we're just taking it to the world. The restoration is a bringing together. Or a gathering of all of the people of God, but I I believe it's also a gathering of the truths of God. Yeah, yeah, and that there, you know, Brigham Young even once said he commissioned the elders to go out into the world and to gather every truth that you can find and bring it home to Zion. And Joseph Smith saying, if I don't if I don't embrace every truth, I shall not come out a true Mormon. Right. It doesn't matter whether it belongs to a Baptist or a Presbyterian, and we could add a Buddhist or a Taoist or a Jain or whoever. Right. It's, Truth is truth, and the restoration gives us, um, I think, a a new, more eternal framework. But it's a lot of frame, and I think a lot of the 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 picture is, you know, in gathering. There's, I think, there's a richer picture that you know comes in as we're gathering a lot of these other truths. And so I see, I've never felt like any of this was conflicting. Um, You know, I've heard, I felt, you know, even recently. Uh, Jacob had an interaction with somebody who was feeling kind of betrayed. Like they had started practicing and felt so, it was so valuable that, that, um, this individual had was feeling a little bit of a little bit of a faith crisis. Like if this is true, then why haven't the process prophets been talking more about it? Does that make sense? And I just think, and I've never really felt that I've just kind of always operated within this framework that I'm free to gather truth and, and live out truth wherever it comes from. And then, um, but you know, I mean, ten years ago, if you told somebody you were started meditating, I mean, they would you were kind of halfway out. I mean, they were kind of worried about it. Probably start praying for you, you know. And, <laughs> and so, but I mean, there really has been, I think, a pretty a pretty dramatic shift just in the last five to ten years, where, um, you know, people are seeing it are are really sort of embracing it more and more and seeing it uh, as uh, integral.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think the world that we are trying to live in now as disciples is vastly different than the one that Joseph Smith lived in or that, yeah, the the early Christians lived in that there were more opportunities for this solitude and this communion because it just was a quieter world. Mm-hmm. There was less to distract
1: mm-hmm. and
0: to pull us away from those moments that we would naturally have with God, you know, working out in the field or that we're just quiet. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so when you talk about how, you know, five or 10 years ago, people would might be concerned you're meditating um, because it seems foreign to us. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people are being turned on to this because we have to be that much more intentional about connecting with God in our very loud, loud, busy way of life. Yeah. And and we're missing out on some of the best pieces as I said of our discipleship because we just aren't finding those times. And so meditation and mindfulness creates a space for us to be with God in the way that we are intended to be with him. Mm. So I love that you said that Carrie and, and Jacob, and they, they are co-authors of this book, The Power of Stillness, that there were different things that brought them to this. And the, like for me, I was so surprised when that was the answer to my question of what, what should I work on? You need to learn how to meditate. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and I've really come to learn that um, it's been in those quiet moments where I stop talking <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that I can hear God. And beforehand, I just had such a rote way of praying that I think I was, he just, he couldn't get a word in edgewise. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wanted to ask you um, how, and you've already alluded to this, but this practice of mindfulness and meditation, what does it have to do with prayer really? And how has it changed the way that you pray?
1: I've come to think of prayer more as, as, as a way of being. Um, less than something that I'm saying. And um, to even share a quote, we talked about this in the book, but I think Elder Christofferson, he gave a talk that where he really kind of captured this really well, where he was was referencing an interview that he had listened to with uh, Bishop Tutu, who was the Anglican Archbishop of South Africa. And the interview or the interviewer asked um, Bishop Tutu Uh, He said, how have you found or have you found that your relationship to God has changed as you've gotten older? And then Bishop Tutu responded, yes, I'm learning to shut up more in the presence of God, Uh, quote unquote. And then this is kind of quoting Elder Christofferson's take on this. But he said he recalled that when he was younger, he prayed with what he called uh, a, quote, a kind of shopping list, end quote. But now, he said, I think I am trying to grow in just being there. Like when you sit in front of a fire in winter, you are just there in front of the fire and you don't have to be smart or anything. The fire just warms you. And then uh, Elder Christofferson kind of commented on it. He said, I think that's a lovely metaphor to just sit with the Lord and let him warm you like a fire in winter. Let that moment be one of rest and refreshing and reassurance and renewal. I hope you will take time to sit for a few moments, a few quiet moments, and let the Savior spirit warm you and reassure you of the worthiness of your service, your offering, and of your life. And I think if there's anything that I would say, it's that, right? Where I just, to be honest, I think I'm, well, family prayers are always a little chaotic with little kids.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and you know and and it's just trying to like keep everybody you know focused and it doesn't you know they're not family prayers are are meaningful in the the effort right to draw the family together less than the substance i think my individual prayers um you know i try to pray regularly but i think the most meaningful experience of prayer is the consciousness throughout the day that i want there's this, and and I just feel it. I, I want to be with God and I want to be in God's service. And, you know, and if I, even if, if in just a a, a momentary, not even a formal prayer, but before I see a client, it's like, you know, I want to be a healer here. You know, will you guide me in, in healing and just something that's similar, but it's not, again, I'm not on my knees. I'm just sort of in my mind and in my heart seeking to be with God, seeking to attune to impressions prayer for me is more of the way that I just kind of show up in on a day-to-day basis in relationships. And, um, and again, I mentioned that, you know, this, my, this feeling of intimacy with that, that mindfulness is really about intimacy with self God and each other. And all of that, I think in true worship, all of those kind of converge at the same time where we experience God in each other, we experience our, you know, God in ourselves, we experience, um, ourselves in god and we see we have a deeper you know experience of each other when we see god in them and you know so ultimately it's it's really all rather than seeing these kind of kind of existing in these kind of compartmentalized spheres of life that true worship is really the convergence of all of those and and less kind of formal distinctions if that makes sense and so I, I think that's kind of where my own kind of worship and my spirituality is, is, uh, is moving, um, where even just kind of formal prayers aren't as meaningful to me. I'm sure certainly there's a place for those. So I don't want to discount that. But but they don't have, I don't see that as prayer, distinct from my way of being in the world with God, with myself and with each other.
0: Hmm. I like that a lot in my effort to try and learn this practice more, um, I took a, an, a meditation course. And one of the things that I really appreciated about it was the, she described that, we, you know, we, we were taught to pray a certain way. We, if we're in church, we're folding our arms and we're bowing our head and we're closing our eyes. And, 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 and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that a lot of people feel like that in order for it to count, Mm-hmm. I have to be doing those things. I have to be kneeling to show respect. And, and, and I feel like we need to shift our thinking around that so that we can, as you said, it's, it's more of a state of being and just having God by our side through the day mm-hmm. um, and having a prayer in our heart. And not that we don't still do those formal prayers, but I've recognized that for myself that if I want to sit with God <laughs> I can't be kneeling because I can only kneel for so long. I've taken to sitting on the couch with my, with my hands open and I still close my eyes. Cause that, you know, gets rid of some of the distraction, but I can sit in that position for a very long time and just be quiet
1: mm-hmm.
0: and listen mm-hmm. and, and not feel the pressure to speak like I normally do in a, in a regular prayer, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been in those moments where i've just been willing to just sit that i'm able to feel god and and where i feel that refreshment where i feel that warmth as you described i love that metaphor that there are so many times during the day when especially as a mom when i feel worn out and i like i'm at the end you know of my rope many times and i just think i can't do this and i've retreated to my room and <clears throat> gotten some some quiet and spent some time with God, and suddenly nothing has changed, but everything has changed because I am filled with love and with greater Mm -hmm. compassion and just more strength to move forward. And I think that's what the power of real mindful being with God or prayer is, and that's what I've experienced. And so for those listening, maybe the invitation to open your mind up beyond what you have previously thought prayer was and experiment with different positions sitting or even laying down if you need to. But the the end goal being, am I sitting with God? Am I feeling warmed by his love? And can I quiet myself enough to hear him? Mm-hmm. It's my hope that those who are listening will really recognize that there is something here that maybe they've been missing that could really be life-changing for them as well.
1: I had mentioned earlier, I, I wanted to if I can read a couple of quotes, yeah. One is uh, just I think uh, it's kind of a uh, a beautiful statement kind of from President McKay on this, and then another from a, just a contem- another latter-day saint teacher practitioner that I think he captures this idea that I think is really beautiful. But so President McKay and and from other you know as as I had kind of as I've been kind of looking for teaching statements from church leaders. President McKay really seemed to. Um, I'm going to read one statement, but a lot of others. There's other statements from um, President Hinckley and President Kimball and President Benson, and a lot of them referenced back to President McKay, right? He, you know, meetings that they had sat in where he had taught this principle. So he seemed, President McKay really seemed to be an advocate of this, but he, at one point he said, We pay too little attention to the value of meditation, a principle of devotion. In our worship, there are two elements. One is spiritual communion arising from our own meditation. The other instruction from others, particularly those who have authority to guide and instruct us. Of the two, the more profitable introspectively is the meditation. Meditation is the language of the soul. It is defined as a form of private devotion, a spiritual exercise consisting in deep, continued reflection on some religious theme. Meditation is a form of prayer. It is one of the most sacred, uh, most secret, most sacred doors through which we pass into the presence of the Lord. Uh, And there's another uh, Latter day Saint author, she's had reached out to me and asked if I would be willing to kind of uh, look at a book that she's written that's coming out, but she's calling it the Sacred Door. I'm looking forward to that, but it's another Latter-day Saint who has been, you know, spent a lot of time with this, but this, this idea too, of, of restoration coming back to that theme and that all of these, I think there's a, there it's sort of seeded in, in the, in the restoration, like in our scriptures, there's a lot of seeds that it's not like we have everything right now. Right. But I think the seeds are there and the frame is there. And I think a lot of what we're, these are all kind of starting to kind of bear fruit, but, but this is from John Kessler. Who's a, he's a Latter-day Saint. Uh, He's an attorney, but a a Zen meditation practitioner, but he said this, he said, I believe that the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has the potential to engender the most profound meditative tradition in the world. This may be a surprising assertion since we Latter-day Saints tend to be pragmatic and often emphasize doing rather than being. However, The restored gospel is uniquely inclusive of being and becoming, and through the gift of the Holy Ghost, sourcing inspiration and revelation by being still, even for a moment. I have faith that over time, we will increasingly integrate and develop meditative practices as a complement to our more active prayers, which will optimize experiencing a personal stillness, an inner peace, and an inspired life grounded in our relationship with uh, with our Father in Heaven and savior, right. That this idea, not only are we, is this just like weird, you know, this kind of weird foreign thing that we're integrating, but not only is it kind of central and really sort of embedded and implicit with, with in our faith, within our scriptures. But I think the idea that, um, that we really could develop one of the most profound meditative traditions in the world and in his words, I mean, to me, that's um, I believe that. And I absolutely, but I also think that's a lot of that's, you know, there there are other traditions who have spent hundreds, if not thousands, of years um, developing some of these practices. I think a lot of the restoration is going to be learning from them, not just kind of developing them, in, 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 you know, independently.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. We can we can bring in the truth from our brothers and sisters outside of the church and learn from them through this process. But one of the things that I do really like about in your book, you point out that we have these built-in opportunities it, like in the sacrament to have a few minutes of stillness and silence to really reflect on, on the savior's atonement, what that means for us on our week, um, temple work, we, sh- we should, think more of it as temple worship
1: mm-hmm. where we
0: can go. And especially in the celestial room, we have an opportunity to be in God's most sacred space and sit with him there mm-hmm. in solitude and, and I think so often we're in such a hurry to mm-hmm. just get back home and get back to life. But we miss that, that key opportunity to be warmed by him and to receive revelation in his house. And in scripture study, taking moments to pause as we read and to think about the words and maybe even have a little dialogue with the Lord and say, teach me here. Mm -hmm. What does this mean? And and not be in such a rush to get through the chapter or through the come follow me lesson, but Mm -hmm. to sit with God and and allow him to instruct us. And so I think that as we reflect on really what's already a part of our our Latter-day Saint practice, there are so many opportunities to be still and mindful and to feel God's love and presence and and that renewal that can come through those those practices. Mm -hmm. Um, can you share a personal experience where being mindful made all the difference in a hard situation?
1: Yeah. Uh, Coming back to where I started to learn mindfulness, I think this idea of, you know, we, we live in a lot of stories and this is where I think unpacking stories and seeing thoughts, you know, in, in a lot of kind of Buddhist teachings, mindfulness teachings, you know, it's a, it's a really important idea that we understand that we are not our thoughts we are not our emotions we are not our bodies and that we you know even from an lds standpoint right we inhabit these bodies but these bodies aren't us we're here to have a meaningful learning experience but we're all getting an upgrade later right this is just part of our 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 learning ground but i think very often we identify too closely with our thoughts we identify too much with our bodies we identify too much with our emotions or we don't really quite see them. Like I feel, therefore I am right. This kind of expressive individualism that we live in uh, culturally. And so, but I think even in the church, we, we teach and promote ideas that are not bad, but I think often we get, we get attached to them. Right. So, you know, I think for, for people whose lives, you know, we have this kind of, you know, you you know, for, you know, for men, you have young women, young men's priesthood, you know, deacon, teacher, priest at these ages, and women, you have these different kind of milestones. And then you get, you know, you go on a mission, and then you get married, and you know, you have these very kind of key milestones in life that are timed for you. And so it leaves people feeling, and not that, again, any of those are problematic, if we can, you know, be flexible within them. But I mean, I work with people as a therapist I I work in Provo. So I, you know, close to UVU and BYU. I have a lot of students and it's amazing how many students at 24 just feel like life is over if they're not married. Right. Or that they somehow that ship has sailed. And it's like, how in the world at 24, do you think, or even at 30, like, why does 30, you know, why is 30, it's like, you know, quarter, you know, midlife crisis, you know, at 30, if you're not married. And so we just have a lot of stories of how life should be. And if it's not, then I failed and, you know, this kind of thing. And I, and I got caught up in that. Uh, I remember I graduated from BYU <clears throat> at 26. Single. And, you know, there were 18 year olds moving into my ward as I was moving on. I just thought I'm I had almost a decade on these, on these people. And so <laughs> it just felt like I was left over. And, and I remember as I was, you know there's there's this is a the plot thickens and all this is i'm i'm oversimplifying in a lot of this but cuz there's a lot of other dynamics at play but there was a point in which i had to kind of one of the things this idea of recognizing thoughts and stories and narratives and that those are just stories and that i was my story was going to be a story that i lived out in god it wasn't going to be my parent's story or the church's story for me, or, you know, according to certain, you know, um, in narratives around when you should get married or when you, you know, I even going back to school at 29, you know, when I'm, you know, finishing up my master's with, you know, at 31 with people who are finishing it up at 23 and just feeling like I'm like late to the party or something. Mm-hmm. And I didn't finish my doctorate until later. And I was, I was one of the last, of my cohort to graduate I started my doctorate single finished married with four kids I mean it was just so many things happening all the time and just not getting lost in the stories and my, my doctoral advisor he had to keep reminding me he's like your path is just not very it's just not a traditional path right I mean you've you're doing so many other things that you can't compare but it's so easy to go there right yeah and, and mindfulness, I think the training of mindfulness, even though even today, I still really have to be very intentional to not get lost in stories or expectations or judgments of self or taking on judgments of others or whatever. That, that learning how to just be. And if I'm being in God, everything is going to play out as it needs to. And my life doesn't need to look like anybody else's life. And. It doesn't matter when I get married or if I get married. If I'm in service to God and my life is being lived out in the way that God is leading me, it's right. And that um, that's a very hard place to be when a lot of the external stories, even very well-meaning stories, or well-meaning judgments or well-meaning invitations to, you know, set you up with my cousin who lives in Montana or whatever, right? All these. <laughs> You know, and um, it was just, I had, I had to just continue, it was a, it was a, it's been a practice of ongoing surrender and l- noticing the stories and noticing the thoughts and not identifying with those, with certain thoughts or judgments or whatever. And so I learned, I think the most meaning thing, m- most, most meaningful thing I think I learned was that I could be full in Christ, in God, regardless of what my life looked like. Hmm. When Elder Christofferson gave his talk several years ago on um, give us the stair daily bread, but it's really this kind of give us today, today's bread and learning how to live in the moment. I feel like God's just spent 10 years teaching me that. Like I I really believe in that. And when President Nelson says that, you know, that that, uh, the joy is the result less of the circumstances of our lives and more of the fullness or the focus of our lives. God spent 10 year, you know years teaching me that but it wasn't but it was God teaching me that through this medium of learning how to be mindful and the principles of mindfulness and the practice and you know these other teachers and all of that because of that I could I learned how to feel joyful and that I was living a purposeful meaningful life regardless of what it looked like and again I was single for many years and, um, and even though I'm married and love being married and have five beautiful kids, I know that if I was still single, I could still be, I could still live a joyful, meaningful life because of these principles that I learned through the practice of mindfulness.
0: I love that. Uh, and I think that's really what it boils down to. Our Heavenly Father intends for us to feel joy, even now in mortality, which can be rough. If we're living in Christ, Our lives might not look like the typical Mormon trajectory type life, but we can be truly happy and fulfilled. More people in the church are now single or divorced than they are married.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And for the first time, and I think in the United States, Mm -hmm. but um, so many of our challenges, I think come from an expectation of our life looking a certain way. If we can learn to live in God and mindfulness and meditation is a big part of being able to get to that place, mm-hmm. then um, then our lives can can go where they may, but okay. know that life can still be joyful and that the Lord will take care of us and we can feel His love through it all. And I, and I think really that's what He hopes for us as his children, and especially as Latter-day Saints, as we're trying to do all this stuff that we've been invited to do, it's not about doing the stuff so much as being with him
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. through the
0: process.
1: Amen. I, I, I've i come to believe that there's not a single experience that we can have in life that can't, by purpose and design, lead us deeper into the heart of God. That can, can't move us into knowing god better and yet if but if we're living in the stories of the way that things should be or shouldn't be and what's normal or not normal or you know whatever it's really easy to get lost in that but every experience that we could possibly have in this life can lead us closer to god
0: yeah i absolutely agree and isn't that a beautiful thought yeah that we really can rejoice in all things even though (laughs) when they're when we're in the middle of the messy sometimes we may not feel like rejoicing. Well, I've really loved our time together, Ty. Thank you so much for for being here, but also for taking the time to learn all of this so that you can teach others about it. I think this really is, as I said at the beginning, this is the missing link for so many of us who are not feeling joy in our discipleship. That the Lord intends for us to feel his love, his support. And we just need to stop and spend more time with him. And then we will feel it. It's there. We just have to stop. Mm -hmm. So, well, why are you still rowing and choosing faith in Jesus Christ and his restored church?
1: Why am I still rowing? I am rowing because it's right, because it's good. I want to be where God is. And I believe in the work that God is doing both in and through this restored church. I trust that God is working in and through many others outside the church as well. I believe in the doctrine that this church is a key piece of preparing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I want to help build the Zion that will be prepared for that coming uh, and I want to be a part of the work of Christ you know throughout the millennium and beyond and I want to just I want to be in God and I want to be in light and I feel that here and I know that as a community we're still growing and we're still learning and and that's going to be an ongoing part of our, our collective experience but I, I believe in the process and I believe in what God is doing in and through us and that he is growing us individually and collectively, And, um, and I just, I want to be a part of that. And I feel life in it. I feel joy in it. And um, I'm committed to it.
0: I love it. Thank you so much, Ty. I really appreciate your time and testimony tonight.
1: Thank you, Tara. It's been a, it's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at Church of Jesus Christ underscore SR underscore podcast and on Facebook at Church of Jesus Christ SR podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about still rowing.